Second Corinthians chapter five. Now this is a little bit of a discussion that's going on here that, that Paul has. And so there's a number of therefores and since and so from now on. Uh, so let's begin just reading at the very beginning of this chapter. Second Corinthians five. Now we know that if the earthly tent we dwell in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and that is each one may receive that each one may receive what is due him for the things done, whether in the body, while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know that it, what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What are we what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. If we are, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, and then this is our text. So, from now on, we regard no one from an earthly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do know so longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. And again, verse 16, so from now on we regard no one from an earthly point of view. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to talk about that regarding no one from an earthly point of view. And I want to give you some examples. And as I'm doing this, I want to introduce you to some people. And as I'm doing this, I want you to think about what's happening in your head when you see the kinds of pictures and the kinds of people that I'm going to put before you. So first of all, let me introduce you 
to this gentleman by the name of Gerald Blanchard. You don't know him. I don't know him. I know about him. Gerald is 44 years old. He's charming and uncommonly gifted at what he does. He is eloquent when he speaks, sure of himself, an open and honest uh, young man, well, middle-aged man, 44. He's presently living in Vancouver after having spent time in Winnipeg and after having spent time traveling the world and living in various countries. Gerald knows a lot about banking and he knows a lot about the art world. He knows what sorts of things are of value and what sorts of things he doesn't need to bother with. He knows what he likes and what he doesn't like. Not much has stopped Gerald in his life. It's been good. He can do almost anything, it seems. In 1998, he was married, and he went on a honeymoon to Austria. In spite of the fact that he's presently unemployed, yet he's highly employable because of his knowledge in matters of security and the like, the matters of art and money and all those kinds of things. Well, now that you've been introduced to Gerald, I wish I could go around with a microphone and ask you, so what do you think? of him. What's your initial impression? How do you regard him? Sounds like a nice guy. Could be somebody sitting in our pews here. Well, as Paul Harvey used to put it, if some of you remember from the radio days, Paul Harvey used to put it, and now the rest of the story. The CBC reported in 2010 Quote, freshly released from prison and now living in a Vancouver halfway house, Gerald Blanchard has the, was the linchpin behind an international fraud and theft ring that stole millions from banks and financial institutions. Maybe you remember this story. Facing more than 40 charges when police caught up with him in 20, uh, 2007, Blanchard, Blanchard pleaded guilty to 16 of those charges in a Winnipeg court. He was sentenced to eight years in prison in the case that involved global heists and unconfirmed links to Kurdish rebels. Blanchard admitted several capers were carried out on behalf of a mysterious figure known as, quote-unquote, the Ba'ath. The Canadian lived a jet-set lifestyle under several assumed identities using elaborate disguises and high-tech surveillance equipment to empty cash machines from banks around the world. In one audacious theft, he posed as a tourist in a Vienna castle before swiping the priceless star of the Empress Sisi uh, from an encased display, leaving a gift shop replica in its place. And if you want to see this priceless star of the Empress Sisi, it's an incredible stone that he, that he took, and you can look it up uh, online. He was eventually arrested by Winnipeg police who were investigating the brazen theft at a CIBC branch in which $500,000 was stolen from the bank the day before its grand opening. Blanchard had stolen blueprints for the new bank, defeated the security system on the ATMs by installing his own electronic surveillance equipment in the walk walkway behind them. With pinhole cameras and listening devices in the ATM room, he knew the coast 
was clear. So what do you think of Gerald Blanchard now? As you listen to this particular story, did your perception of him change? What happened in your mind? What was happening in your head? Surely he doesn't look that ordinary anymore, does he? He's a criminal. He's been in trouble with the law and has a record. He's ripped off corporations and people all over the world in spectacular fashion. I'll give him that. But nonetheless, he's a thief and a fraudster, a Canadian criminal described by the police as one of the most sophisticated criminal mind, masterminds the country has ever seen, who orchestrated never seen before high-tech crimes crossing three continents. So what's with this guy? He's a crook. Did you notice anything happening in your head when you heard the rest of the story? You know, it always amazes me how quickly we draw conclusions about people. When we see somebody's picture, we draw, already draw conclusions. When we hear a little about a person, we draw more conclusions, and then when we hear the rest of the story, our initial reaction may be total opposite of what they are now. We judge folks all the time. Let me continue to illustrate. How about these folks? So often seen on the streets of our cities, even here in Kitchener, Waterloo. Get a job, you useless so-and-so. How lazy can you get? They oughtn't to be there, they ought not to be there. They're always skimming us for cash. They, have you made your judgment about these folks yet? How about these people? Terrorists, towel heads. Such people are not to be trusted. They're not people like us. Sean King, a reporter for the New York Daily News who has been documenting dozens of reported hate crimes in his Twitter account over the last couple of days, says he has heard of more than 50 instances right now of girls or women having their hijabs pulled off in that amount of time. But why not? You can't trust these people. How about these? African Americans. The Globe and Mail reported that someone by the name of Tina Bollinger was standing in a grocery store checkout in Maryland on Wednesday when an elderly man, white man, cut in front of her. The man's wife told him what he had done. I know, but I don't care, he said. She's black. She doesn't matter. A similar story came out of Hamilton. You, you may have heard it. One of the Hamilton city councilors is, is fighting this one. CHCH reported on a post on social media by a Hamilton woman that, that's now gaining attention after she alleges a man pointed at Trump's face on a newspaper, told her, you shouldn't even be here. You're murderers and killers. You're running around killing everybody. I hope he gets rid of all of you. And no one in the line said anything. This as dozens of signs are posted in Toronto urging white people to act against multiculturalism. Some people have openly told black people to go back to Africa. Many of them never came from Africa. They all never came from Africa. And then calling them that horrible N 
word, a nigger. A swastika painted on a wall in New York State along with the words, make America white again, the Globe Mail reported. Black lives don't matter and neither does your votes, was spray painted on a wall in Durham, North Carolina on November 9. What do you see when you see these pictures? And then what about these people? After the death of Inuit artist Annie Putukuk, the officer in charge of the investigation wrote, quote, and of course this has nothing to do with missing or murdered Aboriginal women. It's not a murder case. It could be a suicide, accidental. She got drunk, fell in the river, drowned, who knows? Typically, many Aboriginals have very short lifespans, talent or not. And then in his second comment, he posts, much of the Aboriginal population in Canada is just satisfied with being alcohol or drug abusers. In 2015, a Winnipeg teacher's comments came to light the day Renell Harper, the shy 16-year-old indigenous girl, left for dead in the city's Abyssinia, so as Assiniboine River, after a brutal sexual assault, spoke publicly for the first time after her recovery. She called for an inquiry to help explain why so many indigenous girls and women were being murdered in Winnipeg and elsewhere in Canada. And a Winnipeg teacher wrote the following on Facebook, and excuse the language, Oh God, how long are Aboriginal people going to use what happened as a crutch to suck more money out of Canadians? They've contributed nothing, capital letters, to the development of Canada. Just standing out with their hands out. Get to work, tear the treaties, and shut the bleep up already. Why am I on the hook for their cultural support? It's reported in McLean's. Well, when you see pictures of indigenous people, what sort of thoughts come to your mind? How do you regard them? And then, of course, there's this fellow. Well, we can trust him. Billy Graham is a real person. He's a great Christian, too. We know something of his story, and we see his picture, and we get all warm and fuzzy. Or what about this man? Pope Francis. What sort of pictures does his image invoke in you? It's interesting that in spite of the fact that none of us know any of the people who have appeared on the screen this evening, you don't know any of those people personally, yet you, we all have our opinions and have probably made some judgments about them. We've put them in a context of some sort and we've drawn, we've drawn our own conclusions, sometimes good and sometimes bad. And all of us do it, from the youngest to the oldest. I could have thrown any number of pictures on a screen and we all have a reaction of some sort to the pictures and to the people that we see. I remember the Gerald Blanchard story because we were living in British Columbia at the time when this story broke and uh, he was interviewed once in a, in a mission in East Vancouver. And I remember the interview struck me not only because of Gerald's story, but also because of what was written on the wall behind him as the interview was taking place. There for all the viewers of TV to see were the words of 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has gone, the new has come. I don't know if Gerald is a Christian or not, I have no idea. But something must have made him come clean about his incredible life of crime. And the point of all this, as Christians, we're different because we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That's what the third paragraph of the Belhar Confession, which we read earlier, is all about. We are to be a people who look at other folks differently than the world does. But before we look at that, we need to take a step back and ask ourselves why this may be so, and why it is that we look at people differently. And it has to do with that text on the wall, a text from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's an old in the new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And this is so because we are a people who have been reconciled with God. That is to say, one who knows the Lord Jesus or one who is one of his disciples is so because of God's grace in Christ Jesus. Remember, all of us were once, as Peter put it, not a people. Not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. 2 Peter 2.10 You see, the Bible teaches, whether we like it or not, that because of sin, the entire human race is destined for destruction and eternal punishment. I know we don't like to talk about that, we don't like to think about that, but the Bible talks about that, the Bible thinks about that, so we can't really get away with it. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may receive what is due him or her for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Again, we would just as soon not think very much about that sober reality. But God, the living God, is the judge of heaven and earth. And the sinful rebellion of the human race at the beginning of time plunged this world into disaster. And this is not a disaster that we can send a disaster response team to to clean up. The only solution lies in God doing something about it, in God acting. And he did. The Apostle writes in 2 Corinthians precisely about that gospel. God sent his son Jesus out of his love for the human race, out of love for his creation. God sent his son to redeem those who were merely jars of clay, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. God sent his son to redeem those who are outwardly wasting away from the day they were born, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. God sent his son to redeem those who are weak, to redeem those who are living in an earthly tent, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. That's an amazing gospel. And why he would do that is really kind of beyond our comprehension. And yet he did. And next Sunday, we enter the season of Advent once again, and again, we will celebrate that precise gospel. We will celebrate, as Eugene Peterson put it, that God moved 
into our neighborhood, indeed. And moreover, he did, and because in his sovereign grace he made us his people, therefore, we can no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. As people who have experienced the incredible love of Christ that saved them from eternal judgment and placed us into his family and into the kingdom of heaven, we got to be different now, not only in how we live, but also in how we view others. That's what we've been hearing throughout 1 Peter. That's also what the Belhar Confession is getting at. Paragraph 3, among other things, in effect says this. Anyone, number one, who attempts to justify racial separation by appealing to the gospel, as some in South Africa were doing during the area of apartheid, holds to false doctrine. Anyone who is not prepared to venture on the road to obedience and reconciliation is teaching false doctrine and is not biblical. Anyone who denies that the power of the gospel has the power to reconcile and they deny that because of prejudice or fear or selfishness or unbelief, they hold to false doctrine. And that false doctrine says the third article, is something we reject. We don't want anything to do with that. It's sin. It's not biblical. So, in effect, what does all this mean, practically speaking? Well, at its very root, it means that we need to understand that all the other human beings we share the planet with are human beings created in the image of God. Now, when we say that people are created in the image of God, that doesn't mean that they, that we, look like God physically. Sometimes we tend to think that, that because we're created in His image, we must look like Him. But God is spirit. We are physical beings. So when we say that someone was created, that God created us in his image, we, that means that people share some of the attributes or the abilities that God has, like the ability to love or to have compassion, the ability to trust and care and rule and so on. We're not gods by any stretch of the imagination, but we were created as the crown of creation, kings and queens created to honor him in all that we do. And practically speaking, that means that we must view people like Gerald Blanchard or the homeless or the Muslim or the black person or the aboriginals as people, not as people that we should ignore or fear or destroy or lock up or keep out or anything of the sort. Rather, we need to look at them as people who were created in the image of God and as people who need to experience God's grace like we have experienced God's grace. Remember the story of the woman caught in adultery in John 8? The Jewish religious leaders who were out to test Jesus brought her to him. And those who brought that woman to Jesus were not interested in the woman, 
but they were only interested in using her. And then Jesus turned the whole session upside down when he challenged those present with this statement, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And isn't it interesting that no one threw a stone? Not a one. All were convicted of their need, I trust, for a savior. And then Jesus told the woman, go and sin no more. The Jewish religious leaders viewed the woman from a worldly point of view, whereas Jesus saw her in a very, very different light. And not regarding people from a worldly point of view means that we have a basic respect for other people, in spite of the fact that they may be very different from us. It means that we understand that the entire human race whether as the children's song puts it, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And such a basic respect calls for an end to racism, an end to prejudice, as difficult as that may be. And it means that we have to learn to accept people for who they are. We need to be very careful in our judgments of others. God will judge. It means we need to be careful in how we talk about people from different cultures and races and languages. And when we recognize all people as God as created in the image of God, it means that we may also not may may not view people as sexual objects. And that has something to say about sexism. And has something to say about pornography. It means that we may not abuse or exploit the poor or the weak or the helpless. When we view others as people created in His image, it means that bullying no longer has a place in life. It means that putting others down as towel heads or gay or sissy or anything of the sort is wrong and ought not to be on our lips. And especially those of us who have experienced the love of Christ and who have been reconciled to him ought not to be involved in any of such things. Because we know what it's like to be lost and rejected and on the outside. But because of the grace of God, we have been accepted by him and given life and hope and a future because of Christ we have been adopted as his sons and daughters and how can we as sons and daughters adopted by grace possibly look down at others or reject others and so to hear yes even a Christian say something about someone who has committed a horrible crime of some sort that they ought to be stuffed into a prison and we ought to throw away the key it's terrible that's what they did with Jesus. Verse 16 talks about that. Jesus was viewed as a common criminal, as a disturber, as someone of little value. Crucify him! Away with him! This man called Jesus. Those who looked at him from a worldly point of view made sure that he was killed because he was worth nothing. Nevertheless, writes Paul, we don't see things like that anymore. In spite of their crimes, criminals are still human beings created in the image of God. 
They stand in the need of the Savior. After all, the day is coming that they'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is tough. This is tough stuff because, so perhaps rather than throwing away the key, maybe Dellen Millard needs people to come to him with the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, in him there is life and hope, even though I want to kick the guy. Remember what Jesus that Jesus taught us to love and to pray even for our enemies. And I don't remember that he made any sort of distinction as to how terrible of a person that enemy may be. You know, while the Belhar Confession addresses life within the Church of Christ and thereby challenges all sorts of actions taken by the South African churches to exclude people simply because of the color of their skin, it also goes beyond, the ch beyond that church to speak about how Christians ought to view the broader society. Our approach to this world has to be somehow noticeably different from those who do not accept Jesus Christ and his love. It has to be one of understanding that all creatures created in the image of God, stand condemned because of our sinful rebellion. It has to be one of compassion and desiring that all come to know Christ, no matter who they are. It has to be an approach that champions, champions reconciliation, justice, and righteousness for His namesake. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation, writes the Apostle in verse 19. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though Christ were making his appeal through us to be reconciled to God. His ambassadors. We have a commission as his children not to regard anyone from a worldly point of view, but rather to call everyone to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Father in heaven, we see pictures of people different from us. We hear stories of people who have done different things than us. And some of those stories are horrible and terrible and we want to punch them and we want to lock them and we want to lock them up and throw away the key we never want to see them again oh lord forgive us forgive even us for viewing people from a worldly point of view you created the entire human race in your image and you said it's excellent it's good and you rejoiced in it and then we blew it and you sent your son Jesus Christ and for that we are so grateful and you called us to be your children by grace and now we are your ambassadors forgive us Lord and we're not very good ambassadors because we fall in line with everybody else and we have our own, we have the worldly perspective on others as well. 
Oh Lord, we pray that as we live our daily lives, as we involve ourselves in our world, in our society, in our broader communities, we pray that people may know that we are yours by our love and by our understanding that we're created in your image, as is everyone else around us. O Lord, to you be the glory. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may live in obedience to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.